The scripture reading for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 29. You can find it on page 840 in the Black Bibles. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the part of point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, this Sunday marks kind of the first Sunday in Lent. And Lent, you know, every Christian celebrates the church calendar. Some people only celebrate Jesus's birth and resurrection, you know, on Easter and Christmas Day. Um, but really, the church calendar is meant to be an opportunity for us to re-experience and go through again the life of Jesus every single year together as a people. So we're now in this season where Jesus is moving towards the cross and, of course, towards Good Friday and Easter um, and then, you know, ultimately up to Christ the King Sunday before we hit Advent again. So during this time of Lent, like this is a season where we sort of pause and consider the reality of the cost that Jesus was willing to pay for our sakes and to bring his kingdom to bear on our world. Um, it, it's, it's a time where we think, you know, God did these incredible things for me at an at immense cost to himself. What does it mean for me to follow him? Like, how am I doing in following him? Uh, how am I doing in trusting in him? It's really the same question that Jesus asks the, peop the two uh, women in this story about um, what do you really believe? Jesus says, don't fear, only believe. You know, the, 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 what does it mean to follow him during this season in particular? Um, the story does a really good opportunity of illustrating that for us. Uh, this week, as I was sort of pondering my sermon, um, you know, you kind of do this if you're thinking about preaching, like you're just constantly thinking about it, it's going through your head, and I was in the line at Starbucks, and I was ordering my almond milk latte, and I'm thinking about this stuff, and I'm listening to the radio, and of course, what are they talking about but the coronavirus? You know, 80,000 cases as of last Wednesday, there's like videos and pictures of people spraying down public squares with hazmat suits and all this other stuff, and I was thinking to myself, man, I should probably buy like five gallons of hand sanitizer and maybe two weeks worth of food or something. Uh, like, you know, you just kind of got to start going through this crazy process because you're just afraid or nervous or what to think. Anyway, I pull up to the window, and, the woman, and I reach out for my latte, and the woman says, hey, actually... The woman in front of you paid for your latte, and she just wanted you to have a nice day. And I was like, oh, man. Like, coronavirus, wasn't thinking about it. Like, all that stuff just went away because in that little brief moment, I was living instead of um, out of fear, out of gratitude. Like, when you're living out of fear, you come up with all sorts of crazy ideas for how to mitigate what's ahead of you. But when you live out of gratitude, you're focused on something different. And this story, we see pictures of people who are living out of fear but coming to Jesus and then living out of gratitude. And it's an incredible transition for them. And it's something that we should think about as Christians. As we're following Jesus, are we a people who primarily live out of fear and mitigating damage? 
or are we a people who live out of faith? Jesus' response to both the, the stories in this text, which you only got to hear the first part of, which we're going to finish you know, in the sermon. His response to them is, don't fear, only believe. Don't fear, only believe. Um, so how do we process that? Well, the word I kind of want you to think about during this sermon, and maybe take it with you through the season of Lent, but at least this week, is the idea of what does it mean to be desperate for Jesus? What does it mean to be desperate for what Jesus has to offer? Are you someone who would characterize yourself as being desperate for Jesus? Now, you know what it means to be desperate. You know, if you go a couple days without food, you know, you're doing the whole like fasting thing or, or whatever, you know what it's like to have that first meal. And that's not because there's something wrong with you, it's because you're hungry. Or if you go without water, or you have a barbecue and you're, you had a lot of salt or something and you're dying for a drink of water, there's nothing wrong with you, you need water. Or if you're swimming and you're underwater for three minutes, which I don't know if I can do, but if you do, you're going to be thinking to yourself, I need air immediately, I am desperate for it, and that's not because something's wrong with you, that's because you're made to have needs met. God's created you in such a way that eating and drinking and, and breathing air is not a sign of weakness, you're made for it. And so here's the idea. If you do not see yourself as someone who is desperate for what Jesus has to offer, like you are desperate for food and water and air, then you're missing out on what it really means to know him. We need what Christ has to offer us to such an extent that to not have it, we will fill it with something else. We are desperate to have this relationship with who God is in Christ, and the result of it leads to life always what are you desperate for so let me start with this um, recapping kind of what goes on in the text the first couple verses that we read tell they kind of set the stage and then it goes all the way through to verse 43 but in verse 21 we start with Jesus and he's just come back across the Red Sea and he's there and people are coming to hear him because he's been doing some wild stuff they're like this is incredible if Jesus is who he says he is I got to see this and lots of people are coming well, Jairus, who's a ruler in the synagogue, he's very wealthy, comes to Jesus and he falls on his face. He falls at Jesus' feet and he says, please come with me. I implore you. I'm begging you. My daughter is on the verge of death and I, I know you have power. I need you to come with me. And so Jesus does. He comes with him. And if you've ever seen someone, you ever seen anybody so desperate that they fall on their face in front of someone? Just think of a three-year-old whose parents told them no for a toy or for some candy. They just lose it, all their energy. They just start wailing and moaning and thrashing around. Well, <clears throat> Jairus probably didn't do that. But he threw himself down before Jesus and said, I have nothing I can give you, but I have an enormous need. And will you please come with me? And Jesus says, yes, let's go. Verses 24 and 25, Jesus, his crew, Jairus, are making their way towards Jairus' daughter, who's in his home, and people are gathered there. They're on their way to it. And in the midst of that, a woman who has heard about Jesus touches him, and she's healed. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's incredible. She had suffered much, She'd seen many physicians. She'd spent all her resources, as we read here, on trying to get medical care. For 12 years, she had experienced an illness that made her ceremonially unclean in the community. So for 12 years, she had experienced being ostracized. 12 years of hopelessness. For those of you who have chronic illness, you know what, you know what I'm talking about. For 12 years, she had looked for something. She had tried everything. In fact, one of the remedies that absolutely she would have been given um, was they would take a goblet of wine... And they would mix it with rubber and aluminum and garden crocuses, you know, 
You get that through a nice fine powder and then mix it into the wine and then drink it. And this may be a surprise to you, but it did not have any effect on the illness. None. But it was, it was what was prescribed. She had experienced hopelessness for 12 years. And she goes and she touches Jesus. She hears about what's going on and he heals her. Now, Jesus' response is super interesting. And I can't go into all the details. I'm going to give you a little bit. But Jesus' response is very interesting because she touches Jesus and what we read is power went out from him. Okay? There's something about what Jesus is doing that is so powerful and so wonderful and so dominant that when things that are opposed to it try to attack it or touch it, it's consumed. But not in the way you might think. It's not like he has an energy barrier and it just kind of goes poof. We actually read that power went out of him. That it cost him something to make her well. Right? Um, And again, we could go into all the nuances, but let me just read you something that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It was costly to Christ for for her to experience healing. And in touching him, she would have caused a lot of problems, possibly, because she was ceremonially un- unclean. It could have made him unclean. She could have put herself in a position of serious rebuke from a guy that she is hearing is casting out demons, as he had been doing, and been doing wonderfully miraculous things, and claiming even uh, to be more than just a teacher. And she goes and touches him. She's breaking the law. And Jesus redefines it, which we'll, we'll get into, and she is healed. Then in verse 35, we read that while he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble him any further? Okay, so Jesus is on his way with Jairus and his three, you know, his disciples. They're going through a crowd. A woman touches Jesus. He stops and says, who touched me? And she says, I touched you. And he says, daughter, your, your faith has healed you. And then while they're doing that, I'm sure Jairus is like, Okay, you know, um, people come and say, hey, actually, don't bother him anymore. Your daughter's dead. They're desperate and they're hopeless. They have nothing. That's it. Game over. End of the story. Verse 38, Jesus goes to the house and he walks in. There's lots of people there. There's a commotion there. And Jesus looks out and he could have said a lot of things. But what does he say? Why are you making a commotion and weeping? She's just asleep. And I'm thinking, you know, everybody there is going, like, maybe for a minute they all heard it. Maybe you've had this experience. Someone says something, and you're like, ooh, maybe. But then your senses kind of come to, and you're like, no way. So they probably first thought, maybe he's right. Like, I haven't been in there. Who's, who's the doctors that have been looking at her? Like, maybe she's asleep. But what we read later in verse 40 is, is that they come to this conclusion. They laugh at Jesus. They hear this and then they start laughing at him. Jairus' daughter is dead and they're finding humor. Like this is really confusing. So it's probably more than just humor. They're probably, it's just an emotional roller coaster for them. But they laugh at him. And this is a little side note. But have you ever thought about that? That Jesus knows what it's like to be mocked. Jesus knows what it's like to receive being made fun of by other people. He knows, the God of the universe knows exactly what it's like for other people to think low of you. Or to make fun of you. Or to have some reason why you don't measure up. He knows what that's like. They laugh at Jesus. Jesus says, okay, you can all leave. And my three disciples and Jairus and and, uh, the daughter's mother, y'all come with me. He goes into the room. 
He sees the little girl. He reaches down. He takes her hand. And he says, little girl, arise. And she wakes up. And then he says, someone get her some food. Okay? So that's kind of the story of what takes place. Now let me kind of tease out some ideas. Take away kind of number one, main idea, if you will. Thinking about one thing to think about this week. What kind of power does Jesus have? You know, from this story, you see he has the power to understand and care, of course, as I just mentioned a couple seconds ago. But he has the power to heal and renew. He's able to bring this dead girl back to life. This is incredible. And, you know, just in case you feel like that's something that's not applicable to you, you know, one day we're all going to die. And what the book of Revelation tells us is that there's a day coming where Jesus will return and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more mourning, no more sadness. He will take death and he will have the last word and he will cast it out. See, what Jesus is doing here with this miracle is he's saying, this is what happens when I'm the king. Death is stopped. I make all things new. I can do far more than you ever hoped for or imagined. So he brings healing. He brings renewing. He brings this power to redefine their expectations. You know, this woman had tried everything. She had tried medical care. She had tried the doctors. She had tried priests, no doubt. She tried everything she could come up with. And she finally comes to Jesus, and he's able to heal her, completely transforming her understanding of what's possible. Jairus' people, they, bring, they, they go to Jesus, and they say, hey, the little girl's dead. In their minds, this story ends here. Jesus has the power to actually completely redefine their understanding of reality. And actually, God invites you into that experience. God is at work in you. God is capable of doing things in you that you cannot do on your own, that you can't muster up through some self-help book or kind of, you know, push through with your own willpower. God is at work with you with the kind of power that makes little girls who are dead come to life, that heals women who have suffered for 12 years and restores them by simply a touch. That's the kind of power that comes into you today by grace and through faith as you hope in who Jesus is. He invites this woman He invites this little girl, he invites us to say, maybe he has a power that I can have faith in. Secondly, what kind of people does Jesus love? Well, he loves the desperate wealthy ruler. Jairus is a wealthy guy. Um, He's got lots of people who care about him. Remember, he's at his house and the dead girl is there. And there's a lot of people who are there with him. So people care about him. And, And Jesus goes there and he has compassion on Jairus. And compassion on the mother. And compassion on the little girl. But he also loves the, def- the desperate suffering woman. She was broke. She was considered ceremonially unclean, which means untouchable. And Jesus, with his power, comes in and says, There are no such thing as untouchables anymore. I make all things new. I am here to restore. I have come to heal. Jesus essentially shows us that he loves the humble heart. Whether you are the wealthiest person in the room or the poorest person in the room. Whether you're the healthiest and strongest person in the room or the sickest person in the room. Jesus comes and says, I have power for you and I have love for you. The kind of power and kind of love that makes dead things come to life and is a kind of love that is able to sustain you in ways far beyond your imagining. Now, why is it then, if that's true, that Jesus has power for us and he has love for us, why is it that we often do not go to him first or second or third with things that are bringing us great anxiety or great, you know, things that we're really desperate about. Why is it we don't do that? And part of it might be that you think he doesn't care or that he's not interested 
Or depending where you are in your spiritual journey, if you're new to the faith, you might think, well, he probably, like, I might deserve this because of something I've done before. I want to read you a couple passages of scripture to help us orient our understanding of the kind of people that God wants to show love to and give his power to. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still uninterested in God, Christ died for us. While we were still actively opposed to who God is and his ways, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you get the message? God's promise to show you love has everything to do with his desire to love you and care for you and give you his power and not upon your willingness to receive it or your faithfulness in the past or your faithfulness in the future. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to, to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of power, the kind of love that God has for you. The kind of power and love that regardless of what's happening in your, happening in your circumstances, he is, his desire is to bring peace and to sustain you and to be enough for you. Whether it's your child or your own illness, that's the kind of power he has. So God has power for us. He has love for us. A third thing to consider, which I think helps us get at how to really apply this, is what are you really desperate for? What are you really desperate for? Jesus is not desperate for attention, okay? That's not what this is. His miracles are not magic shows. It's not Cirque du Soleil coming into town and wanting to gather people. That's not what Jesus is doing. The entire reason of his miracles is to push back the darkness and to say, I want to reveal to you what my kingdom's going to be like. In fact, it's why he tells Jairus and his wife, hey, don't tell anybody what's happened here yet. It's not my time. This isn't the strategy. And by the way, I already gave you an out. You can just tell them all, actually, she was just asleep, right? Jesus comes not to gather attention just for the sake of gathering attention, but Jesus does come to show us what it means to trust in him. How it is he can say these particular words to us and us actually engage in them. To the woman who has just been healed, to Jairus and his daughter and his mother, or her mother who were there, Jesus says, in the midst of the fear, in the midst of the people saying, hey, she's already gone, don't worry about it, this, this simple phrase, do not fear, only believe. Don't live out of fear. I want you to live out of faith in what I'm saying and what I'm doing. I want this to be your starting point for every chaotic event that you will no doubt encounter. To start with this, I'm not meant to live out of fear, I need to believe. Now that's, that can be very hard to do, I understand that. The good news for you is, is you see the kind of power this God has for you so that you can move that direction? One whose power can do these things can surely work in you and develop the ability to actually live into not living out of fear, but moving towards belief. What are you desperate for? I read an article recently. It talked about what stresses people out most. And the reason I think it's applicable here is because if you think about what it is that's really stressing you out, it's probably because you think that whatever it is you're stressed out about, if you could just get it in the right place, you'd no longer be desperate for whatever you're trying to, to get, right? You're stressed out because you think this is so necessary, I'm desperate for a solution, I must get it fixed. 
okay? Teenagers were asked the question, what stresses you out most? 83% said, school stresses me out the most. It's not shocking, right? 69% said that what college they're going to stresses them out most. And 35% of all teenagers said they lay in bed at night at least an hour a night stressed out about these things. Now, why do you think they're so stressed out about that? I want to, I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons, and it is stressful, okay? I'm not, I'm not invalidating that. It's actually, you're actually going on a really special journey. It's going to be a little scary. You're going to need the power of Jesus in the midst of it. I can get that it causes anxiety. But part of, the, I'd say the biggest driving, the driving force of this anxiety is probably fear of the unknown, fear of not measuring up. What if I can't get into that cause that everybody's been telling me that I've just got to go to? What if I can't pull off that career that, like, I just got to be as, as great as dad or as cool as mom or whatever it is? What if I can't measure up? You know, that can cause a lot of fear and anxiety. Here's what I want you to take with you, especially if you're a teenager. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, and I'm not saying you're, gonna be, you're not going to be stressed out. What I am saying is the guy who walks on water, brings little girls back to life, is able to ascend into heaven, sends the power of his Holy Spirit, says to you this morning... When you face that thing that's stressing you out, don't live out of fear. It's a lie. Trust in me. It's the truth. Don't live out of fear. It'll sap you. It'll, it'll drain you. This is going to be tough, but I want you to trust my word because you're going to find life there. Adults were asked the same question. Man, what stresses you out? 77% of adults say that finances or money cause significant stress in their lives. It's not a shocker. 40% report, 40% report, their job is more stressful than they think it should be. Uh, I think that's probably true. Of course not for me. Yes for me. Like for all of us, right? 40% of people say that, that work is more stressful than they think it ought to be. What do we learn from this? Well, life's hard. Yes. Work's difficult. Absolutely. Sweat of our brow. Of course. And I'm not implying that the, the Christian approach to difficult things or being stressed out about stuff is to simply say, well, I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm just going to trust Jesus and it's all going to be okay. M- not necessarily. What I am saying is that the power of God in Jesus Christ and the love of your Father is with you in the midst of that very scary journey you're going on. That whatever it is you're facing, that God is with you. And here's the good news. For your marriages for your children, for people in your life that you really care about, if you really want to see them begin to move from places of great suffering towards the life that Jesus offers, I'm going to tell you one of the biggest ways to unlock that in their life is for you to do business with who Jesus is for yourself. For you to begin to so much rely on the power of God for yourself and that person and the love of God for yourself and that person, that manipulation is no longer part of the relationship. That actually, your goal is for them to encounter Jesus. It will transform the way you treat people. And one of the reasons why I think stress is so, or why work is so stressful, uh, and why life can be so stressful for teenagers, is we live with the reality that we know we're not in control, but we live as if we must be in control for this to work. I know I'm not in control. I'm not, I'm not all powerful. But if I'm not in charge, I'm absolutely going to freak out and lash out at everybody around me, Right? The bad news is if you really were in control and got everything you wanted, nobody would want to be around you anyway. Like that's not, it doesn't, it's, it's just a lie. It doesn't actually work. Jesus is saying, trust in me, don't fear. James chapter 4 verse 6 says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Where do you want to be? God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
God wants to be gracious to you. Just a couple more things and we'll be done. How does God respond to our desperation? How should we think about God in the midst of our desperation? One thing is, is that remember that Jesus is not limited by time, okay? Jairus was absolutely looking at his sundial or whatever he had on his arm while he was in the crowd, and and Jesus is talking to this woman. He's like, my daughter is dying. I am not trying to be a jerk, but like, she's been suffering for 12 years. What's what's 30 minutes, right? Like, can can we go? Jesus is not limited by time. He doesn't ignore the person in need. He tends to her. And then he goes with Jairus and does for Jairus far more than he could ever dream possible. And what does Jesus do? Because he's interested in relationship, he holds the girl's hands. Who's dead? So that the first thing she sees when she opens her eyes is the life giver. The one who makes all things new. And he says, little girl, get up. And she sees him and he says, let's get her some food. She's hungry. Jesus is interested in relationship. He's interested in you. He's interested in what's happening in your life. And what's beautiful is he has the power to comfort us in the midst of our desperation and our stress and our anxiety or whatever it is by our being desperate for him. So what this means for us, you know, is trust in the Lord's timing. It means trust in the Lord's intentions. This may be news for you. I don't think it will be. But God's schedule will rarely sync up with your iCal. Rarely. And crises never ask permission or for time slots you might have available to, to, to level a blow. God is powerful. He is able to do crazy stuff like what you read here in this text. And he's the same one who invites you to cling to these words when you find yourself in that space of chaos, you're listening to the radio, coronavirus, whatever it is, to start with this. Don't fear, simply trust me. Start with this. Trust in the Lord's power. Trust in his timing. Trust in his intentions. Hear Jesus' words, do not fear and only believe, which leads to this last point. That the whole point of this You know, what you see with Jairus and and then falling face in front of Jesus, falling face down. And with the woman who's suffering, who falls on her face before Jesus, is they come to worship him. You know, part of our worshiping God is to say, look, I I don't even know what I have for you, but I know you have life. And I need you to give me life. And God always responds graciously to that. Always. And gives us life. You know, growing up like I did around lakes, I was a lifeguard growing up in a lot of places. My daughter's been a lifeguard. One of my sons has been a lifeguard. Walker, will, maybe he'll be a lifeguard. I don't know. But when you're a lifeguard, they tell you when people are drowning, it's rarely that they're thrashing saying, Mr. Lifeguard, please help me. I'm in danger. I've got about 10 more seconds before I disappear. That's not what happens. Usually, they slip off silently. They're exhausted. They've been trying. And they just sort of sink. And as a pastor and as a husband and as a father and the people in my life that I love and care about, I wonder, oh, who's drowning? Like who's slipping under and I can't see it? And you know what brings me comfort? Is Jesus knows every single detail of every single person's life that I cherish and love and he is caring for them. He is able to sustain them. He's able to see them when they're suffering. And so what that means for me is I pray, and yes, I pursue, and yes, I care for people, but rather than living out of fear of what might happen to them, I entrust them to Jesus. And I want to challenge you to think about this week for yourself and for those that you love, to begin asking yourself, where am I living out of fear? And where might I live out of faith in the one who has power and love for me that's divine, that transforms everything? All right? 
Let me pray for us, and we'll celebrate the supper together. Father, we do give you thanks for your son, Jesus, who has power to redeem and power to renew and power to heal, whose power is sufficient for us in our time of need. The one who calls to us and says, do not live out of fear. Live out of trusting in me and what I've done and the things that we've seen so that we might know the power of Jesus for ourselves. Lord, would you give us faith even this week to begin to live in light of that. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.